0: Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization.
1: Welcome to the Power Struggle, episode three, where we will be discussing questions around power. Who has it, who doesn't, and how we can collectively organize to get it. My name is Evan Path and I'm joined with Jerry Lightfoot and special guest Jasmine Clemens. How is everyone doing today? Doing good. Awesome. Great. Well let's let's jump right in. So we're gonna start by talking about the Brianna Taylor decision and From the so-called paper of record, the New York Times, an October 2nd outline framing her death. And I'm gonna just read as follows. The death of Breonna Taylor, a black medical worker who was shot and killed by Louisiana police officers in March during a botched raid on her apartment, led to wide-scale demonstrations in the spring and summer as the case drew more attention. A grand jury indicted a former Louisville police officer in late September for wanton endangerment for his actions during the raid. He pleaded not guilty. No charges were announced against the other two officers who fired shots and no one was charged for causing Ms. Taylor's death. Audio recordings of roughly 15 hours from the grand jury proceedings were were released on October 2nd in an extraordinarily unusual move that could shed light on what evidence jurors considered. Brett uh, Hankinson, a detective at the time, fired into the sliding glass patio door and window of Ms. Taylor's apartment, both of which were covered with blinds in violation of a department policy that requires officers to have a line of sight. So I also want to play a short video from the summer from the Black Lives Matter Louisville chapter of activist Chanel Helm.
0: And we're just looking at, like, this is disdain, like a complete gross disdain over black bodies, period. And I think that's why this moment is a lot different than any other moments, because you are watching what took place during coronavirus, talking about essential workers, but then you put them on a hierarchy. So if you're a doctor, you're here, you're doing government officials, but if you work at Family Dollar, the grocery store, you're down here, and there's a lot of us. And it's a lot more down that way. And they were mostly black and brown. And so now there's this compassion around like, you know, what is really taking place and and really understanding the racism. I think that's what people are seeing in the Breonna Taylor case. But that's what's fueling them to not even give a fuck, right? They don't give a fuck that they don't have to put all that information on an uh, incident report because they have that bargaining agreement that can support them to, to hire them in either this position another position or another police force and so that's what we've been seeing um, the police officers that attacked me are actually lieutenants with this police force and six months later after they attacked me they went on to kill a man with his handcuffs behind his hands handcuffed behind his back 12 times and what did they do to you Oh, just toss me around on the ground, just while looking for help, just anything that they want to. And it was like, you need to assault people just to get your message through. And that's a problem. Um, we're, if we're talking about violence we have to include and that's one of our number one demands if we're talking about violence we're talking about gun violence we have to include police terrorism in that violence because that's that's up it's ultimately like the key they get funding based on the work that they do the work that they do is to target black and brown bodies in this country and so if we want that money to shift if we want that the investment into black lives into brown communities we have got to divest from one of the most uh, money-making pieces of our government and it is public safety underneath the police.
1: Mm-hmm. And this tweet from Common that I found on your timeline, uh, Jerry, it's from James Baldwin and it reads, and part of the rage is this, it isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time in the face of the most extraordinary indifference indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance. So it's quite a crisis that we're dealing with, and I want to kind of pass the mic to y'all.
2: Well, I can jump in. Um, so I grew up in Louisville, and so Brianna Taylor's murder hit a little differently. Um, just seeing the city that I have this fondness for, though I never go back, um, just lit up with rage and seeing this girl that, well, young woman that could have been any of my like cousins or peers or folks who went to my church literally murdered in her bed at, at night and having kind of being gaslit where people are treating you like you're overreacting by being so hurt. And so that, that's been the biggest challenge is because it hit so close to home for me and seeing a city that I love essentially burn be out of this rage and know that it won't change anything. I think we all knew at the end when this was over, when the grand jury came back, that no one was getting charged with murder. We all knew it. And then come to find out the attorney general didn't offer that as an option. And I'm I, I'm very much so looking forward to what the recordings have to say, because it just reinforces this thought that justice is always on the ballot every election cycle, because it's a state and local thing. And if we want this change, it needs to start state and local. It's not just, you know, the police unions and their contracts, which need to be, you know, changed. It's not just developing community policing. It's not just federal oversight. It's also, who are your prosecutors? Who are your attorney generals? They're the ones making the decisions when it comes down to finding justice. And with a loss like Brianna's, I don't know what justice looks like to our family because we can't bring her back. We did get a settlement, but I don't know what restorative justice looks like to them. So I also feel like that's missing in this conversation. Um, like, what do they actually want at this point? I know they, you know, asked for a, a lot of reforms, but when we're thinking about abolishing police and changing our criminal justice system and we're looking for other forms of making people whole, what does restorative justice look like when the state is murdering or injuring the people it's supposed to be protecting? And so that's where like the two things I get left with, that state and local ballot issue, and what does justice look like when life is lost?
0: Yeah.
3: I think that was, those are great points, Jazz. And I just until you said that, once again, I totally for a split second forgot you did grow up in Louisville. Yeah, so that, that just brought back memories all in itself. But I, I'm going to kind of take the route of the whole James Baldwin quote for a second, because it is kind of to be black in this country is like living in a state of constant rage. And like you said, it's not just about what happens to you, it's about what happens all around you and what we can see. So the thing about the civil rights movement that kind of made us as a people so strong and so powerful was because we definitely came together and we had you know each other's back and we were there for one another. We were literally a community. And now it's like a lot of individualism when it comes to uh, black and brown people and, and, and people just for self instead of for the greater good of everyone else so kind of getting in in this whole advocacy mindset and and doing this work and trying to be in the community you start embracing those qualities of the of before of the, like the 1960s movement when we had each other's back and when you know your pain was my pain your struggle was my struggle so the things so the things outside of that um you know just coming back into it and having and seeing stuff that has happened to other people that looks like us, it definitely does touch you a certain kind of way. It makes you that much more angry, makes you that much more enraged, and you know even more so than if it was happening to to myself. You know, because I look at Breonna Taylor, like you said, Jazz. She could have been your friend. She could have been your cousin. She could have been, you know, could have been your sister. Could have been anybody. And you know, we don't have that. Her her light was snuffed out before time. And like you said, what does justice look like? We don't get justice. And I think that's the biggest slap in the face when, when we got this. I would much rather no charges came out at all than the fact that they literally charged this man about putting bullets into the wall, into the drywall. So, and it was crazy because you didn't do that for all of her neighbors. You did that for her white neighbors. You didn't do that for the, the uh, other black family that was adjacent to her apartment. You did it for only the walls of those white neighbors. So that's why, to me, it was even more a slap in the face because you're showing us time and time again, not only do we not matter, but let me show you how much you really do matter. I'm going to charge this white, you know, I'm going to get justice for this white draw wall because in our minds, it has more more clout. It has more esteem, more place in our community than your black and brown body. And that's the part that that gets infuriating. That's the part that's... It's sickening, it's disgusting, it's saddening because over and over and over again we see the same shit. And while we're expecting and while we're expecting different uh, you know different outcomes, we, we never get it. And it's kind of like I knew it wasn't gonna happen, but maybe just once, just once I want to be wrong, just once I wanna be able to say that we finally did get justice. So and I can go on and on about that and then I'm gonna let you go ahead and hop in.
2: Yeah, but just to chime in real quick, like talking about how that wall meant more than her life, you know, it just reinforces rightfully or wrongfully the idea that police are here to protect property and not people, especially not black people, where that drywall is worth more than her life and, you know, everything that she went through. And so, you know, if they want to change the culture of policing or how it's perceived, that right there isn't helping anything.
3: Man, <laughs> I kind of struggle with this question on a daily basis because some part of me, I feel like with, with enough, if we get enough like-minded people, get enough of the right people in the right positions, then we can change the system. But then another part of me wants to be like, man, we're never going to be able to change this. It was never intended for us in the first place. And if we really want it to be what we feel it should be, and what's represented, you know, a, a true representation of an embodiment of America and who America is, its diversity and everything else that we need to nuke it and start over. I just don't think that once again the powers that be will allow us to get to that point, even though it's clearly listed as one of our options. If if the government and everything that we have in place is not no longer working for the people, it's up to the people who once again empowered that government to abolish it, start over and create a new one. Uh, you start talking like that, people, you know, give you all (laughs) all types of uh, other labels. But I think eventually, once again, if, if it's us doing the work, if we get enough people like us that's thinking forward, progressives, that's just that just wants to see positive change, that we can actually, you know, we can come out on top and have the system we have. Luckily, a lot of people that were holding on to power, all these people that's been in for forty, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, sad to say they're dying off. So you're gonna get that new wave of power pretty soon and, and definitely sooner than later, we have to just make sure it's us or people like us that are stepping into those roles and positions, people who, who know it really feels like it's gonna have their constituents back rather than going to Congress or going uh, to these political platforms and serving their own agendas.
2: And I alluded to it before with the state and local, but I think change is, is two parts. It's gonna come within the the actual system, the defined system, whether it's government or criminal justice system. And that's through individual actions. I have to look at me and the people I check off on this ballot every, you know, year to two years, four years that I allow to represent me at my city and assess who's upholding all these structures that I don't agree with. Who is okay with, you know, the police contracts allowing them to get paid their full pension when they're terminated for something like this? They're upholding it. And, you know, I think we often talk about this from a national thing, and it's just so micro. It's so in your neighborhood. And, you know, I think the appeal of blowing things up is great, because I would love to start over. But then when dealing with the reality of things. The incremental change, I think, can start this snowball to larger larger systemic change. And then, you know, hopefully with this next election, we have like a a change in the Department of Justice who can actually provide real oversight because it's really their function. Their function isn't to actually tell these locals what to do, but it's to call them out. Like, so with Cameron and Hankerson, if we had a real attorney, a, a US Attorney General, they would come in and, you know, find a way to find some kind of justice for us and point out what they've done is wrong, but we don't have that right now. And then the other larger thing I think is the system that we buy in of thinking of value and how we, like we've commodified Breonna Taylor's death, right? It's almost a meme at this point. And, you know, that's disheartening because we shouldn't be saying her name because it's a trend or because it'll get a retweet, but because she's a person who was valued. And we're just holding her up, also too, because she was EMT. She was this young woman who was changing her life around. I think we also need to be valuing people who might have a twenty-page rap sheet who may have harmed someone. Everyone's life is equally valued, and if they lose it at the hands of the state, we need to come out in the same rate. And so, I think we also need to change how we, as a collective, view victims of police violence and who is worthy of fighting back and who is worthy of justice. And I think once you get collectively that we all value everyone the same way, then I think it makes it easier for us to value our neighbor as we value our own lives because we're not you know, justifying based on their job or what they've done with their life. They're a human who deserves to be valued.
1: Yeah, I think on the policy side, you know, Jasmine, you, you mentioned a few things. I, I mean, first this whole drug war, is, has been a complete farce from the beginning. And when you look at the billions of dollars that are actually profited from the drug war, they are being laundered through the largest banks in the world. And these people, these executives get slaps on the wrist and, and they get to skate. And at the same time, there's just this cycle of violence that's attributed to the, these you know, bank-organized, drug deals that are international in scope and then the the lower level folks are completely you know um thrown in jail and in this case there was no drugs there was nothing like that you know it's and it's having a no knock warrant for drugs you know what what is this we this is insane and like the judges who approve that no knock warrant they need to have some liability as well so that they're then starting to question. Maybe I'm not going to sign off on every no knock warrant request. And of course, we need a functioning Department of Justice that can go into every police department that has criminal complaints and can clean house, fire people, put people in prison who were once on the side of law enforcement. You need community oversight for a lot of these policing uh, precincts and no qualified immunity. Officers have to testify against each other. They're public servants like all the rest. But on a higher level of like the systematic situation, I feel that because the generations are changing and because the culture is changing and becoming, I think, more open, um, more multicultural and and accepting and the reactionaries are fighting that much harder now because they're, they're on the cusp of losing everything. And that's why they're doubling down. Um, that's, that's kind of what I'm seeing and I'm, I'm still hopeful that we can get there without nuking the whole system, Jerry.
3: Yeah, um, I'm, I'm definitely hopeful too. And just going back to, to what you said, Jazz, about when you, when you're trying to to put people in office that kind of align with your values and you, you know, you're checking off your boxes and that's how you're making your decision on, you know, who to select once they're there, I think a big part is we also have to hold them accountable as well. So, yes, you told us that you were going to do X, Y, Z, but now that you're in there, we've only seen you do ABC. So what happened to X, Y, Z and just not letting them off the hook so easy of I'll get to it on my next term. That's why you have to reelect me. It's like, no, we, re- we elected you based off of what you said you were going to do this go round, not to keep pushing these issues on the back burner. And I think some people feel like they have time to do so because it doesn't affect them. You know, once again, older white men, you know, 60, 70, are the ones really in power to this day. So talking about, you know, being young and being a black and brown person in America and the issues we face, it's like we might as well yell it from Jupiter because they're really not gonna hear it. And Evan, to, to your point too, a lot of these things do need to change when it comes to uh, cops losing their job and being able to go to a, uh, a whole another state, a whole another precinct, a whole another agency and, and still be a part of law enforcement. So there needs to be like a national system, a national database to where once you do something crazy like that and you get fired, you get relieved of duty or, or some type of national certification to where it gets pulled, you can't be a law enforcement ever again. You know, talking about their their pensions, we start hitting their pockets once again. Like we talked about in first two episodes, loss of life, loss of money. We we gotta ring ring these points home. And with the cops, they almost seem like their own little mafia. They're almost untouchable to an extent. So you have to start tapping their money. Okay, so you want to mess up like this, and now we gotta get this huge settlement. Guess what? It's coming out of your pension. And not only not only that, I'm I'm strongly pushing this policy. I'm trying to figure out who I can talk to. I'm like raising voices in National Black Caucus and whoever else will listen. Like, we have to get this policy somehow in front of some state or, you know, uh, even if it's uh, on the federal level of representation in Congress, somebody that can take this and start running. with. We need mandatory minimums if you discharge that firearm unlawfully. So if you start handing out 25s to life, uh, I guarantee you, the police brutality, it won't come to, it won't stop 100%, but it will definitely make them think twice. It'll definitely come to a grinding halt. They won't feel as empowered, they won't feel as free, and they won't feel as uh, bold to commit these acts against Black and brown people.
2: And there's two, I mean, there's two challenges with the thoughts you brought up. So using the pension, to pay out these settlements. The challenge that presents, if you see like USP, the US Postal Service, a big thing with them is they more or less have fully fund their retirement system. And that was the way for the Republican Congress to kind of cramp their growth and tie up their finances. So I would be concerned about what that would do for the cities and the counties and the locals in terms of, because they'd have to fully fund to have enough money to cover these million dollar um, settlements and where is that money going to come from? I'm concerned about the other social services that would be picked off from that. And so I think like a easier, less long-term ramifications in in, in terms of finances is writing into the, um, um, excuse me, the police contracts that they waive their right to their pension if they are, you know, convicted of this, this or this. So that way they don't get the $260,000 payout and get to go start a new life somewhere else you know they got to start from scratch like me if I just get fired um and then I would like would love a mandatory minimum but we're trying to get away from that and I feel like if we move back towards it just for police then it like justifies bringing mandatory minimums back for everything else because uh what is it in Florida it's like I don't even know. What the? It's something that kind of rhymes, where if, like, you have a gun, it's, like, seven, it's like, yeah, fire yeah, the gun.
3: Show a gun five, do this ten, something twenty. Yeah,
2: I remember the billboards, and I just, like, <laughs> that's so frightening, because it just opens up, like, so many people. Like, uh, remember the woman in Jacksonville who shot her gun she in the air, because her. her abuser was there, and she had to fight ten years. Uh-huh. So, I'm just, like, so against mandatory minimums in any way, shape, or form. So, nah. But I think okay. they're... Like you said, there just needs to be stronger accountability for these officers. And we need to figure out what is like the legislative, the policy way, the financial way to hold them accountable. Because right now there's there's pretty much nothing.
1: So what do you think about the discussion about defunding the police? Um, there's, there's a lot of people, uh, I, I think just from the discussion right now that it sounds like we all agree that there is a police, there is a um, need uh in society to have policing um but maybe i'm wrong and so I, i'm just curious because you know sometimes just that view alone that i just expressed is now kind of a right-wing view it can be painted that way from the left so.
3: yeah when you refer to it as policing then it, it kind of kind of sort of no um not strictly defunding and i think people hear defunding anything taking away their money so let's let's tell it for what it's really supposed to be Reappropriation. Let's re- reappropriate some of these funds that you're pouring into these uh, into these police systems, police precincts, and put them in other places that, that definitely need the money. So for me, a big thing that I hate to see cops have is all this military equipment. Like I had to do so much to be able to go through and use this military equipment, and it's stuff I use at war. So why is it here on the streets of America? Like, there's no war going on you shouldn't have these tanks, you shouldn't have these uniforms, the where we, you're unidentifiable. You just kind of wreaking havoc and doing your own thing and with no accountability because that uniform, it, it's like a, like a wave of, of this, this force and you can't pick any one person out of it. Like it all blends. So I think that's kind of like another way to, to hide behind. So for me, I just want to see a lot of that uh, extra money get, appropriate it to places where it's truly needed in the community like let's put it into our infrastructure let's put it into our schools put it in our hospitals let's put it into our our care for elderly whatever we can and then let's take away all these military toys and gadgets from these local police precincts because you don't need them here like you shouldn't have drones and like i don't know it just baffles me the stuff that they have access to that you know we do overseas fighting a war (laughs)
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm all about defund. I think it's semantics when you talk about reappropriating all that. It's it's all the same thing. People just get scared. No, defund them because we've defunded edu- public education for 30 years since school got in- integrated. So 50 years, we've defunded public health. You know, we've defunded public infrastructure. We've been defunding things for a long time now, but now that we say defund police, it's like, oh, you're you've lost your mind, and I feel like one step towards moving towards abolition, what I'm totally for is taking the money like Jerry, like you said, they don't need we have a spy plane here in Baltimore. Mm. I can hear it when it's flying low, just circling. they haven't been able to say any crimes that is actually solved, but Just circling, monitoring us all the time with this annoying hump. We have a spy plane. There's so many, like, you want to talk about a militarized police force? Baltimore Police Department. And at the same time, I pay, like, crazy amount in taxes here. City taxes are, like, a fairly high amount. And the roads are crap. Let's not even talk about the schools. They don't have heat and potable water but we don't have any money because we're militarizing this police. We have police officers making double their salary and overtime. It's just sketchy. And I think completely from a budget standpoint, not done in a fiscally responsible way. So defund it and give the money to social workers. An excellent example, I was walking in the park one day and there was a man clearly having a mental health crisis. He was completely naked. He had climbed the top of this tree. There are three police cars, another one pulling up, and an EMT. And I'm just adding up all those, you know, the pension, the health insurance, all that in my head, when all they probably needed was, like maybe an EMT maybe in case you fail, a social worker, like someone who could talk to someone who's trained as artists when a mental health crisis. And I was like, let me get out of here before they shoot him. Like, that was my concern. Even though it was a white man, I was like, they might shoot him. And I I don't need, I I just couldn't hand that on my conscience. But that was like an excellent example of misuse of public funds. We don't need six, you know, police officers for that. You need a social worker. When people, and as many of the shootings we talk about, the one in Rochester, I believe, mental health crisis. So many times it's a mental health crisis that they're not trained to handle. And that could just be in our public health system. So defund them.
1: And they've closed down a lot of the uh, public uh, mental institutions, you know, accelerating it over the last 40 years for people who do, do need it as well. Uh, anything else to add on this topic for today? I'm sure we'll revisit it again and again with the system that we're in. Um,
2: yeah, someone's probably getting shot right now, and you have to talk about it tomorrow.
3: Yeah, and sad part. I was saying with jazz and the, and the social workers, uh, that's a that's a good point. Crazy thing is, we like expect so much out of our social workers, we literally burn them out to the point where you know they're not working ten plus years in that field. They may get a good five to seven, and they're gone. Case load is too horrendous. The pay is atrocious. So for all of these cases, you may be making 30,000 a year. That's not livable wage anywhere uh, anymore for the most part in this country, unless you're in the decoders or something. So, um, yeah.
1: And I would just, I'm I'm sure Jasmine, you're not suggesting that schools should be as defunded as they are in healthcare and all this other stuff. I mean, we need to make the people who are making the money pay. We need, I'd look at wall street are the greatest offenders and the biggest river of finance the world has ever seen is in wall street and that's one of the key places to to make sure that these other things are funded um but yeah so moving on to another uh topic of uh, mental psychosis we're going to talk about the presidential debate and i've got a video that i would like to share from the debate
0: criticized the, the vice president for not specifically calling out Antifa
1: and other left-wing right. extremist groups. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups sure. and to say that they need to stand down and not... Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right wing problem. This is a left wing right.
0: problem. This said, is a left wing problem. I'm got, I'm right.
1: white supremacist. Ahead, Antifa's an
2: idea, not an organization. Militias. you got it. Not militias. Militias. That's what right. an idea. FBI,
0: his okay. FBI director Gentlemen, said. Well, then gonna, you know we're what? Done, no, no, no,
1: we're done. So, did you uh, watch the debates? Last week, I know Jerry did. Him and I were uh, kind of shadow tweeting each other.
2: I put my phone down and watched it and drank because I wanted to stay employed, but <laughs> it was embarrassing. But I think just going back to that clip, but you know, like when you're dating, okay, I, I'm, maybe not because it's just me. So when you're young, you're dating and this guy's like, trying to convince you that you didn't see him with that girl or like no that's not someone else's stuff at the house and you're you're seeing it with your own two eyes right and they're convincing you that your own eyes are lying to you that's what like Trump does like my own lying ears I didn't hear him say that because then the next day what did you say I don't even know what proud boys are you mentioned them unprompted sir so you know who they are like that was a clear message intended to his white national audience and the Proud Boys. And beyond that, the fact that only what two, three minutes of the entire debate was dedicated to, the, you know, white nationalists when they've been a huge plague on this country since he became office. It's just sad. And I'm, I'm tired of it. And I, I kind of hope they cancel the rest of the presidential debates because I don't think there's anything substantive we're going to get out of it.
3: Yeah. Um, I, I definitely agree. I, like the cat said on CNN, it was a hot mess inside of a uh, dumpster fire inside of a train wreck. But the sad thing is like we just couldn't look away. It was, we just kept watching it. Nothing presidential about it at all. Um, like you said, the, the, the things or topics that I was really kind of, I want to say looking forward to because I didn't think I was going to get any real, answers, but I just wanted to hear their responses. Anyway, they kind of glossed over. So when they started talking about the issues with race and the things that have been going on that quickly sidetracked and segued into the white nationalist part. So we got, we didn't even get an answer on, on, on any of that stuff. So I just really felt, it was like being in a lunchroom back in high school and people were just kind of joining on each other and they were just going back and forth with the snide remarks. Uh, Trump didn't. He kept over talking Biden. I was just like, yo. So we don't have a mute button. We can't mute his microphone. Like no one thought about that, and it just got to a point where it it made me upset. You know, as a parent, <laughs> when Trump took that that shot at his uh, son with substance abuse issues. So uh, one because anything that they were debating didn't have nothing to do with you know his son's period. His substance abuse issues. His son and his other son that served to end up, you know, dying later on from brain, brain cancer after he came back. Nothing to do with anything. That, so I don't even know why we've we been touching that. And I work in the substance abuse field. So I see, you know, people with real life issues like that every day. And it's not, that's not something to poke fun at. That's not something to kind of gloss over or try to call attention to. And I think Trump's you know, that that kind of backfired in the space because it allowed Biden to kind of look in the camera and identify with a lot of the country and say straight up like, yeah, my son does have a, a substance abuse issue. You know, we're working with them. We're trying to give him the help he needs We're supporting him. But I'm pretty sure a lot of you out there ha- are dealing with family members that have the same issue. So let's go back into this quarantine where substance abuse have shot through the roof, you know, abuse, spousal abuse, child abuse, everything is just going through the roof because now people are spending all this time with sometimes people they went to work or school to escape. And not just that, people are spending all this time cramped in, you know, inside and they're left to their own thoughts and they're left to their own devices. So yes, if you were having issues in life, if you're not where you want to be, besides being out in a regular world, we could kind of float those things off all you have are these four walls to look at, and those four, four walls inside your mind as well. So then it's it's pulling people, you know, lower and lower. So what you you use, you use so you can feel better, not about yourself, just so you can feel good. It's not always about forgetting or letting go of what's going on. It's just kind of escaping that reality and being in a place where you're just surrounded by everything that feels good. So this presidential, uh, these debates. Uh, COVID and all now with, with Trump, I think maybe it was a ploy because he did so bad. Hey, let's just make sure he doesn't have to debate anymore. But I'm with you, Jazz. If we don't have any more, I'm cool. I, I think we'll get more from the vice presidential debates than, uh, than the actual presidential debates.
2: And like to piggyback on something you said that like really illuminated issues I had with that debate, it was supposed to be a segment about racial issues, right? And then it jumped to white nationalism whiteness is always somehow centered into everything you know just that quick they're worried about pretty much themselves and we can't even get a whole segment but i think kamala i think we all know kamala's going to mop the floor with pence tomorrow <laughs> if they still have it because now he doesn't want to agree to the plexiglass because why i believe in science i
1: uh, well. So talking about, you know, Biden's kid, people in glass houses shouldn't be throwing rocks. I mean, and we got to look at the media and its complicity, like being complicit with Trump's rise and his support, because Ivanka and Jared Kushner have been doing illegal deals in China for the last four years. I mean, Jared Kushner got uh, he, he... he's such a boy wonder genius in real estate. He bought one of the most expensive properties, 666 Fifth Avenue, way overpriced, over leveraged. He was about to go bankrupt. And then all of a sudden some uh, realtor or some, some Saudi kingdom people like invested a bunch of money, you know, and saved his ass. These people all need, it's a criminal syndicate, it's criminal family. And this media is giving these folks a pass the $750 taxes that Trump has been paying, you know, and and for two years and he he only paid taxes five out out of the last 10 or 15 years. That question that Chris Wallace asked Trump, uh, it it literally, it was less than 30 seconds before Trump started getting involved with it and then they just moved on to the next uh, question. So there was no policy substance. I mean, it's an embarrassment for the United States to have this man up there, this lunatic. Uh, I think the rest of the world uh, is fearful because we have so many nuclear weapons that's in control of Donald Trump. And I think the numbers coming out of the election uh, after the debate and after this COVID uh, circus with Trump, uh, the numbers coming out is that Biden is way, way ahead. And I don't think Trump can win on a actual vote counting uh, election. And so their whole thing is they're losing the, the game and they're gonna flip over the board. And that's this call to arms that, that's gonna be happening. Um, it's, it's very discouraging, but that's where we're gonna come together as a people because we are the majority.
3: And good point what you said. I, I totally forgot about the whole uh, tax thing. And it was funny because <laughs> my uncle is a huge, huge, huge Trump supporter so we had these these kind of talks and debates all the time and i'm like you had tax issues like i think you, the, you owed the irs maybe a couple couple thousand dollars couple grand and literally they were garnishing your accounts like they stuck their hands into your bank accounts and they took that money and it and it hadn't even been a few months you know what i mean so i said so you're okay knowing the issues you had in the past with with your tax taxes you're okay with your president uh, paying $750 for two years and then for 10 years, not really paying no taxes at all. And then he brought up, well, you know, he's smart enough to know the loopholes and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, don't give me that. Because even as a business, just like in your personal, there's only so much you can write off and so much you can deduct, then you hit a cap. And still, once you cap out, that the cap is what it is and you still are held accountable for all the money, um, you know, beneath, or excuse me, above that cap. So, there's no way that you could write off every single thing to not know oh anything you know that it's illegal it's shady and I think that's the main reason why he's been trying to keep those tax returns so close to the vest because he didn't want this to get out, but through whatever the southern district of New York is doing in their criminal investigation, a lot of the stuff is coming to light, and I think Trump is just really trying to hold on because he knows as long as he's president, he's going to avoid any charges, but as soon as he's out that White House. And he's probably gonna get those uh, metal cuffs, you know, slapped on his wrist. So he's just trying to trying to do what he can to stay out of, stay out of jail, stay relevant. And even with him suggesting that he probably won't turn over power peacefully if he loses, like that. I mean, it, it just it just doesn't end. But go on, Ev.
2: Yeah, he's shining. I mean, it's a big light he's shining on our tax system, which we all know is super flawed and was built this way out of policy decisions by Republicans a long time ago, but
1: which going to get too. caught yeah.
2: and some Democrats, mm-hmm. but you know, it's a, it's a lot of one of those systemic things, but in him framing it, like, I'm just smart. That's why I didn't pay taxes. So you're calling me dumb because I pay my fair share and that's not how this should work anyway. Cause you weren't even going to pay an actual fair share of your income. You were just such a cheat that you could only muster up seventy five hundred and fifty dollars So I think that's disappointing, especially as the leader of this country, that you're preaching that we're all, you know, in this together and we all go by the rules and we all obey the law and you are blatantly breaking the law. And then you think about the IRS that spends most of its time investigating and punishing low-income people, mm-hmm. you know, for tax, mis- really, truly tax mistakes, but often sometimes tax for fraud. When they should need to be looking at people like Trump, when we need to be fixing the tax law so that way people like Bezos are actually paying their fair share. But instead, we're playing the circle game where paying taxes is, you know, it's, it's actually like a game and if you're smart, you can win. That's, that's not how it should
1: be. And to follow up with what you were saying, Jasmine, and I think Biden got a little shook because of all the interruptions. But I mean, that is the best comeback where Trump's like, you know, I'm I'm smart. I no one wants to pay their taxes. So like you're calling every other American suckers that because any working class American you know, over fifty thousand dollars is easily paying way over a thousand thousand dollars in federal taxes. And yeah, this is something that obviously the new administration, which is hopefully going to be Biden and a majority in Senate and the House you need to, I, I'm into IRS policing of high earners, you know, and there's major tax evasion going on throughout the world, but we can control what's going on in the United States. And uh, that, that is something that we, we have to look at. So, and one other point that a lot of people may not know is that Trump took a $300 million loan that he personally guaranteed from Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank is one of the dirtiest, most corrupt money laundering banks in the entire world. And it's supposed to be coming due all of it in two years from now, and he is just not that liquid he he already lies about how much money he has, so that just gives him one more reason you know on top of the tax fraud and all the other crimes he's committed the, the guy's about to go completely bankrupt and he's he's gonna he's gonna have to get carried out of the the white House that's the only way this guy's leaving
2: what's baffling to me is that if this leader was in any other country, the United States would be intervening, (laughs) the UN would be intervening, they would have been showed up, not even in year one, to, you know, stage help stage a coup or help get this dictator out of power. So I think that's also like what's embarrassing about it, because we how dare we police other countries when we have a scammer in chief.
1: Unless you're Saudi Arabia. And, and that's another thing. There is a criminal syndicate behind Trump. And Trump is the front man for, international criminal, for an international criminal syndicate masquerading as government. These guys are, cannot govern. They cannot do policy. All they can do is grift and graft and steal. They can't govern. They can't lead. And we, when, we, when we take Trump down, we also have to realize that all the people behind Trump, all the media cartels, from Britain to Saudi Arabia to Israel to China to Russia to the U.S., these are there are interlocking criminal syndicates of oligarchy that are going on. Trump's just a front man that is representing a lot of these interests. So that's that's something to always consider as well. So anything else, Jerry?
3: No, we're good. We can go to the next topic.
1: <laughs> Too much Trump, I know. All right, so we uh, discussed a little bit about. The platform of both presidential candidates uh, for a country and minorities. Um, my take on it is that there's problems with the media once again framing this both sidesism, where it's like Trump doesn't have any policy. He he has lies, but he there's nothing there. Literally, yeah,
2: no policy on his website of any kind, a, let he, alone for black and brown community. You
3: missed, you missed the platinum deal that he offered us, Jazz. You didn't see that.
2: I must have been asleep that oh, day.
3: Oh man, you know it made big news at mm. the end of September is the the platinum deal where he wants to commit was it five hundred billion and access to capital, create three million jobs, uh, bridging historic disparities in healthcare and education, school choice, criminal justice reform, favorable trade deals for black farmers and manufacturers, make Juneteenth a national holiday. Yeah, (laughs) look, so it was funny that this rolled out when it did, because to me, though, I just feel, yeah, as a politician, you got to say some stuff, you know, you got to make some promises, but don't insult our intelligence. Like, look, man, if you really wanted to help us, you had four years to do it. Why are you rolling this out at the end of your four years to be like, hey, guess what? I got you. I got your back. See this? 500 billion in your communities. Hey, that's a lot of money, 3 million new jobs. Didn't say what kind of jobs. So I'm trying to wonder what 3 million jobs that would be specifically for us that won't be for any other rate. Yeah, I don't see that happening either. So once again, if this is something you really cared about or who was that passionate to you and for you and for your black and brown, Constituents of people of America, this would have been something you would have implemented maybe year one, a few months in, into office or rounding out the end of your year, year one, saying, okay, I've, I've been in office a year, I've seen where you know what we need to do some brush-ups, do some work on, and this is my plan. I would have no problem with it, but the fact that this is it comes now like it's just it's total fluff.
1: He's not the yeah. challenger candidate. Oh, anymore. He's not the challenger anymore. He, he has a record. He can't just come out and say law and order and law and order. This is under your watch, Trump. And you had four years and you did nothing except forgive a huge multi-trillion dollar tax cut and all of the unrest and instability that you've created in, in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, though. Yeah. Oh, sorry, please, Jasmine.
2: No, just the way he just wants to deflect. And I think going into the RNC, it was like, more Trump, no policy, like nothing else, but just vote for me because it's Trump. That's Yeah, you're under the incumbent, but you didn't do anything, like you said, these past few years, but make certain people richer. So you got to at least like pretend. (laughs) And the fact that you're not even going through the true like, executed motions. I know you don't care about black and brown votes. And I'm not even going to acknowledge your little platinum plan that you allegedly announced that makes no sense.
3: Uh, <laughs> I, I think a funny part with that too is if you look at the, you looked at the RNC and you looked at everything that Trump was trying to show, if we elect Biden and Harris, this is what America's going to look like. It was right now like everything that you tried to show wasn't a futuristic snapshot of america like buildings burning and in the streets protests after protests after protests and all these issues will, that's where we're living now so i'm trying to figure out how biden and harris is going to lead us to that and that's someplace that we already are
1: so with the hope Uh, and at least with the numbers that are showing, Biden and Harris are going to take office January 20th. And I think we need to anticipate all the fiscal hawks and conservatives, both in the Democrats and the Democratic side and the Republican side saying, we need austerity, we need to reduce spending because if we reduce spending, we have this huge debt. However, anytime you start cutting social services, you start cutting government spending. The government is right now the last backstop stop. The only reason we haven't had a complete collapse of Wall Street is because the Federal Reserve has put nine trillion dollars since last October, last September, with the overnight repo market. And, you know, this is way before COVID that Wall Street was already starting to have a major financial liquidity crisis in the main banks. And so all these austerity ghouls that are going to be coming around and saying we need to cut, cut, cut. We need to counter them one on the fact that it's never it never works. It always contracts the economy. We need to grow. the The debt is a concern because at a certain point we're going to be floating bonds internationally, and China and Russia are trying to get off the dollar system. They're already doing bi- bilateral currency swaps, and the international reserve currency has given the United States a unique position since 1945, and that could change overnight when people stop buying the international bonds that we we try to sell through our Treasury auctions. So we need to grow the economy so that. If our actual GDP right now is around, I think, 20 trillion, our national debt is around 27, 29 trillion. It was 19 when Trump got in there. We need to grow the the national economy to 40 trillion. So once you have a $40 trillion GDP, then the debt's not going to matter that much, but it won't come through cutting. And we need to fight all these austerity ghouls that are going to be coming out of the closet. At the same time, you're going to have Wall Street attacking Biden anytime he tries to do anything progressive. Federal Reserve is going to try to jack up interest rates, which is also going to contract the economy. So you you also need to figure out how you can Trump essentially bullied uh, uh Kevin Jerome Powell into doing a fiscal policy that is just limitless liquid like liquidity for the Main Street or the the corporate titans on Wall Street. So there there is gonna be a need to also commandeer the, the Fed Reserve as well.
2: I mean, I saw a report the other day that had some folks on the super left upset and then other folks happy, basically like some Wall Street folks were saying that the Biden administration would actually be good for them and obviously good for our, you know, country's fiscal health. And I think there's an energy. Well, one, we have a long record to point at the show that austerity does not work. It doesn't do anything but make things worse. So I think it would be difficult for Congress to come through with some draconian plans when we know it won't work. Like, it literally won't. And everyone knows that. So I'm I'm not too concerned, but I might be too optimistic. Because like you said, when Biden's president, I literally knocked on wood because, I mean, still, I'm 28 days out. But I'm very concerned for the same reasons I don't want everyone to suddenly become a fiscal hawk when we let Trump and his people, you know, grow the deficit. That's literally his doing. No one else did that but him. So all of a sudden, you can't turn around and want to want to be a penny pincher now that you aren't in charge. Um, So that's my concern. But I think enough of us are (laughs) going to be on them, that they won't be able to get away with it. And I think it would take a while too for them to really get to those kind of like plans. Um, I think the front end of a new administration and a new Congress is going to be trying to undo a lot of things, um, basically like social stuff or codify other social things that we're concerned about before they get into, I think, more of the fiscal, um, stimulus.
1: And, and Trump's genius is scandal hopping so that you're constantly unable to keep up with his scandals and his criminality and he just commits one crime the next. Biden, is a
2: genius or just coincident? Or is just he just a criminal, criminal. psychopath? Do you
1: know, can't help himself. Uh, all this being said, for, for the good, Biden needs to come out with a policy a day that is just completely disorients the corporate media, the Wall Street media, that they're unable to really follow it. And then at the same time, I'm sorry, Chuck Schumer represents Wall Street. Nancy Pelosi represents Silicon Valley. Her husband, Paul Pelosi. 500 million dollars. I think these people are some of the, are going to create some of the uh, harnesses to prevent a more progressive um, realization of this country. And so the, and the Kristen cinemas and the Joe Manchins in the Senate, these are, these are folks that, even Chris Coons, you know, you got to get rid of the filibuster. It's 51 votes. Filibuster is an old, uh, you know, it goes back to the Jim Crow days, you know, and and we're still using it. So it's, it's crazy. And the Diane Feinsteins and all these other conservative Democrats, frankly.
2: I'm all about tossing a filibuster, but I'm also team Nancy because that lady can whip some boats and raise some money. So until we change the nature of our political structure, she does a damn good job. <laughs> but maybe- she also, I think she's been here in the heat and the same with all the, you know, more senior members of the congressional delegations, they're they are feeling it and hearing it, and I think there's also hope that with an administration change, I'll, I'll, there'll be room for more progressive ideas because we'll be in a safer time. Like, everything's just so fragile right now that even doing tiny little things that are just good, it just are off the record. Like, they're, they're just not allowed right now. So I think getting to a more stable, normal government where I don't have to worry about my president's doing every day allows Congress to actually legislate and present these ideas and move us into a more progressive space than we've been in the past you know, few years.
1: Uh, so I think that's a really good segue into our answer answer to financial inequality and the lack or uh, the non-opportunity for so many Americans. So I'm just gonna pull up a few slides. So this first uh, tweet is uh, focusing on a Politico article. Uh, It comes from October 2nd, 2020. And it says, the number says it all. Median wealth of black families is $24,100. Median wealth of white families is $188,200. The federal minimum wage hasn't changed since 2009. And yet in Geneva, Switzerland, of course, the cost of living is very high there. It's introduced a minimum wage of $25 an hour, which would be more than $4,000 a month or $48,000 a year for the the lowest earners. AFL-CIO, they talk a little bit about raising the minimum wage. If the federal minimum wage kept up with inflation, it it would be 10.75 an hour, not 7.25 it is today. If the federal minimum wage kept pace with workers' productivity since 1968, the inflation adjusted minimum wage would be $18.67. Now keep in mind nearly two out of three minimum wage earners are women, And of those, more than half are older than 24. And something that is really important to uh, consider, there's a graph that shows how, as union membership declines, income inequality increases. So the the graph for all of our listeners who may not be watching this, the share of income going to the top 10% and union membership was both around a little over 30% in 1950. And as the share of the income going to the top 10% has now climbed to 50% by 2020, it is a one-to-one correlation with the decline in union membership to less than 10% in the private sector. So union membership and and, and unions allow workers to get larger shares of of the actual pay and of the productivity gains that they get. And then the final slide is looking at the wealth of U.S. billionaires um, since September 15th, or between February 8th, 2019 and September 15th, 2020, and how much uh, their wealth has grown. So Jeff Bezos, his net worth in February 8th, 2019 was a, an astounding and insulting $131 uh, billion. And since that time, he has grown his wealth by 55 billion, or 40%. Bill Gates, his wealth has grown 19 billion and 20%. Mark Zuckerberg, his wealth has grown to 62 billion dollars, with uh, and he he's increased his wealth by 38 billion in the last six months. So I'm gonna stop there. And uh, what policy solutions can we? Can we use to address this financial inequality and, and lack of opportunities for Americans? If you like what you hear, hit the like button, leave a review, and subscribe to hear future episodes. You can follow the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag PowerStrugglePodcast. And you can find us at empathymedialab.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Patreon at Empathy Media Lab. Stay well, everyone and educate yourself, organize, and mobilize to fight the power and create a brighter future.